Well, we've made it to the end of the letter. Over 16 weeks have spent thinking about this particular place, and as we come to the end of this one, we are reminded we only have 65 more to go, all right? And uh, Lord willing, we will, we will make our way through God's Word. As a child, if you grew up in church, I remember learning a little, um, little point, a subtle point that we used to teach one another, and, and that was through the folding of hands. You'll remember if you grew up in church, you, you folded your hands to make a little church, and inside that little church were your fingers, and those little fingers were the people. And it was a little subtle idea, a little subtle nudge, that church was about people. It wasn't about the steeple, and it wasn't about the building, but it was about what happened inside of that building. It was about people. And this morning, we're reminded that the church is about people, that Christianity is not about systematic theology or a Christian culture or even about Scripture. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about making Jesus known where he has not yet been made known. Fundamentally, Christianity is about Christ and his people. The Bible often talks in the language of kingdom, that Jesus Christ came into the world to establish his kingdom. In Mark's gospel, it begins in this way, Jesus Uh, shows up there in Galilee and declares the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. You might say, "Well, well, how do we know that the kingdom of God was at hand? Well, it was because the king had arrived. The king was there. Jesus is king and he is to be king of all people, even us. He is to be king of this great nation. Jesus will be Lord and king over every single nation. He will be victor over everyone. This is what Jesus came to do. This morning, therefore, we want to see and be confronted by not deep theological truths, not some deep doctrine, but about kingdom people, about how God has designed his sovereign purposes to overcome nations by redeeming the people of nations. In other words, the way that Jesus is a victor over a nation is by radically transforming the citizens of those nations and making them citizens of his kingdom. In other words, he captures us, he captivates us and transfers us from these earthly kingdoms into his glorious and eternal kingdom. And we see in these final remarks by Paul, not merely some outdated details of ministry long forgotten, but that ministry is about real people. The Bible can sometimes feel distant to us. It can feel as if these are merely theoretical. It's just about theology. Notice here that God did not reveal himself through a systematic theology book. God didn't reveal himself through a list of doctrinal statements, but rather through real living people. People who had moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents and had jobs and had sin in their life and had issues in their life and who weren't perfect, but he used them as messengers of the great gospel 
that we now have been recipients of. We notice here also as we conclude this letter that this letter is personal in nature. He knew these people. Paul cared deeply about these people. He loved these people. It's it's demonstrated in the way he cared for them. Now Paul had never once met this congregation. Outside of Epaphras, he had never, and Onesimus, he had never met one of these church members. He never went to a Sunday service. He never shared in a potluck meal with them. He never attended Wednesday night Bible study with this particular congregation, but yet he still loved these people. Not only that, we see these were real people who existed in real time. These were people created in the image of God, who lived a life for the glory of God, and who were sinners saved by grace. One of the truths we want to walk away from this morning is that our gospel is not theoretical, it is actual. It affects the lives of real people. And sometimes we can approach church, we can approach the things of God as if it's just cold and calculated. It's just a list of cold doctrinal statements, doctrinal truths. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is about transforming real flesh and blood people who have feelings, who have affections, who have real souls. The gospel is about people. And we see that here in this passage this morning. So I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to consider here this final section, beginning in verse 7 and ending there with Paul's final words in verse 18. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you everything about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. They are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from the Laodiceans. And say to Aricarpus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, as Paul concludes these final words and giving some final greetings and welcomes from those who are in his ministry, we're reminded here in this particular passage that Christians ought to live for Christ in such a way as to impact the spiritual lives of those around them. As we read through the ministry activity, this uh, missions report, if you will, from the Apostle Paul, we're reminded in this passage that these people, these Christians that are listed there, 
live their life in such a way as to make a kingdom impact in the lives of others, even people they had never met before. In other words, as Christians, we should aim to do others spiritual good. This morning, I want us to think about that particular truth of how you and I have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to do others spiritual good. That the people that you're sitting around this morning, you have been called, invited by King Jesus to make a kingdom impact in their life, to do them spiritual good. We see here in this passage, Paul's description of three aspects of, king, of the kingdom of Christ. We see first, described here, kingdom people. Paul describes these individuals in, in a very fascinating way. So I just want us to consider very quickly these kingdom people and how Paul uh, sought to encourage them. Then we see here also, secondly, we see kingdom activity. We want to ask ourselves, well, okay, we're kingdom people, we're in the kingdom of God, we're in the kingdom of Christ, what kind of activity should we be doing? What are the things that we ought to be giving ourselves to? What does it mean to do spiritual good to others? Well, Paul here describes in these verses the kind of activity we should be doing. And then finally, in that final verse, in verse 18, we see some kingdom commitments We see that as the people of God, we ought to be committed. Paul doesn't just sign off with a goodbye, but rather reminds them of the kingdom commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, look here at the kingdom people. Paul lists a number of men throughout this section, and women, uh, but particularly here, two at the beginning in verses 7 through 9. He mentions two, Tychicus and Onesimus. Both of them, we are told, are beloved. Notice how he describes Tychicus, he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, Tychicus and Onesimus had a job that Paul gave them. They were the couriers of this letter and also the letter to Philemon and the letter of Ephesus. And there was a a duty that they had. They were to be couriers. They were to take this scroll and then read it among the church in Colossae. They had a very important job. Now, for us this morning, we think, well, if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'll just pick up my phone and send them a quick text message. Or if I want to write a letter, I might email them or, or put it in the mail and someone else will deliver it. In this particular time, of course, this would have been a very important job. It would have been an arduous job. It would have required a skilled courier. Interestingly enough, Paul describes Tychicus as a beloved brother. Now, of course, a courier that was delivering a message had to be one who was trustworthy. He was beloved. Beloved by who? Well, beloved by the church there in Rome. Uh, Beloved by those fellow Christians and those in the ministry there in the church. But notice here he's also described as a faithful minister. He was one that was not only beloved but trustworthy. He was faithful in his task. And he understood his task of servitude. He's described here as a fellow servant, or uh, better translated, slave in the Lord. He understood that he ultimately worked for King Jesus. Jesus was his king, and, and so he was about the king's business. We also have here Onesimus. Now, we don't know much about Onesimus outside the letter that he's going to be carrying with him. Onesimus was a slave. He was born a slave, and he had run away in sinful rebellion against his master, uh, Philemon. And he had fled to Rome. And sometime when he was there in Rome, he heard the gospel, repented and believed, and entered into gospel ministry. 
We learn all this from the letter that Paul writes to his master, Philemon. You know, part of the gospel reminds us that we have to reconcile with those that we've wronged, that we've sinned against. And Onesimus is sent back to Philemon by the Apostle Paul to reconcile with his master. And Paul then commands Philemon to forgive his debt and to allow him to be a free man. The gospel and the kingdom of Christ is about real people that have real struggles and real difficulties. It's a reminder to each and every one of us that that God is about saving sinners, not saints. Tychicus was a sinner. Onesimus was a sinner. But Paul describes them both as faithful and beloved. Interesting enough, if you look at there, verse 9, we see that he is also described as one who is one of you. Philemon and Onesimus, they're uh, doing business in the uh, Lucian Valley there near Colossae. And so he was a Colossian. He, this congregation knew of Onesimus. He knew that he fled. And he is interestingly mentioned here as one who has been reconciled to God. You know, as we think about what Paul is doing in describing these men in these verses, it's a reminder that what Paul did was develop and deploy faithful men to ministry. That Paul's ministry was about building the lives of those around them. About developing and discipling men so that they would carry the gospel to this young congregation. Paul invested in the lives of others in order then to impact others. You know, that's how it works, isn't it? If you want to impact a generation of people, then you start small with a, just a small group. And then that group multiplies. And that multiplication process, then you begin to see how big of an impact you can have. A little church can have a huge impact by developing and deploying godly men and women who are then sent to the nation. Consider even this congregation in the short years that it's been around for a hundred years and sending out men and women to start new churches, sending out men and women to the international mission field, sending men to receive theological education so that they can then pastor in local churches around North America. Friend, we need to have our eye to those around us and developing and discipling those who are in our congregation that God might be using to send from us. We want to see men and women who are worth emulating, though. When we think about the way Paul describes them, we don't want to emulate jerks. We want to emulate godly men and women, right? And so, therefore, we need to be godly men and women. Where did these brothers learn to be faithful? Where did they learn to be beloved? Where did they learn the, the ministry? They learned it from the Apostle Paul, who was a one who was a lover of men, one who was an encourager and a builder up of others. Notice what Paul writes there in verse 8. I have sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Not only was he to deliver this letter, he was to be an encouragement to those around him. Why and how did he learn this? Well, he learned it from the Apostle Paul. He was an encourager. And we see the characteristics here of these two men as those who we ought to emulate. 
And therefore, we ought to seek to emulate the faithfulness of those around us. Are we a model of Christ's likeness that we've seen uh, throughout this letter that we might then be an encourager to others? This is how we shape the lives of those around us. So first, we must see that the kingdom is made up of people. But secondly, notice the kingdom activity. Paul goes on in verse 10. He, he lists here in verses 10 through 15, 14, rather, six men, three of whom are Jewish and three of whom are Gentiles. The first three we see are Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. He describes Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner, and he greets him. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and finally Jesus, who is called Justice. We don't know much about Aristarchus, but we do know that he is a comfort to those around him. He's a fellow prisoner. We know a little bit about Mark, and this is John Mark from the book of Acts. Uh, If you know the story and the sordid relationship that Mark and Paul had, uh, they didn't get along much, at least not early on. You see, early on in Paul's first missionary journey that he ever took as he was sent out by the church at Antioch, John Mark abandoned him. He abandoned his post. Perhaps it was fear. Perhaps it was just uh, some personal issues. But regardless, Paul was not a fan of him. He was frustrated with him and angered. In fact, it caused division in the church. One of the interesting things we see here in this particular passage is that Paul and Mark reconciled. That the gospel has a way to transform people's lives. And notice here, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Barnabas was the one that he really had the falling out with, more so than even Mark, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We see in Paul's words here that there was some restoration that had occurred at some point between Paul's first missionary journey and presently in the life and ministry of Paul. It's a reminder to you that sometimes in church we step on each other's toes, but that never gives us license to to completely remove people from our lives. It's a reminder that sometimes church is messy, but ultimately the gospel brings about reconciliation and restoration, as we see here. The third Jew that was listed here was Jesus, who was called Justice. You might say, well, why did he go by the name Justice? Well, you can see the complication if your name is Jesus, right? (laughs) No, not that Jesus, the other Jesus. Um, And so he changed his name out of respect for the Lord, most likely. Well, we don't have much about them, but we are told that they are a part of the circumcision party. In other words, it's a reference to the Jews. And then he lists three Gentiles, Epaphras, who is one of you, that's their pastor, then verse 14, Luke, and then finally Demas. Now we don't know much about Demas, though we learn from 2 Timothy that Demas later will abandon the faith. It is a reminder to us in gospel ministry, there are always Judases among us. It ought to be a humbling reminder that even among us this morning, there are those who are not genuinely saved. There are those who claim the name of Christ but never genuinely believe upon Christ. It is a humble reminder, considering someone like Demas, who could serve beside the Apostle Paul, but yet ultimately reject the gospel. No different than Judas, one who followed Jesus for three years, heard every sermon, ate every meal, but yet still abandoned Jesus. 
In verse 14, we also see Luke, the beloved physician. Um, Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke was one who was with him even up until his death. Luke, the beloved physician, perhaps one that was a slave himself that was then freed but served as a doctor and whom we will hear much from in the months ahead as we consider Luke's gospel, which was most likely given to him from the Apostle Paul uh, as they ministered together those many, many years. And then there's Epaphras there in verses 12 and 13. Notice how the Apostle Paul first describes him. He says he is one of you. In other words, he's a fellow Colossian. Epaphras was the one who had heard the gospel when Paul was in Ephesus, repented and believed, went home, and started a church. That's what Christians do. You see, that's, that's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about not just you receiving the gospel, but about you taking that gospel to your friends and family and those around you. And that's, that's what Epaphras does. He, he, he takes the gospel he receives it, goes home, and he begins to share the gospel with his friends and family. They come to know Christ, and then they begin to gather themselves together there in the, in the city, and thus a new church is born. He's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Notice here that the kingdom activity that is described here is one who is given over to prayer for the saints. Now, Epaphras, again, is their pastor. He prayed for them. Notice the language he used. He struggled in prayer. It wasn't just some fleeting prayer. It's like, oh, God, I hope bless that congregation back home. I hope they're doing well. I hope they're, hope they're doing all right. Not at all. He, he struggles in prayer. Paul describes in verse 13, I have bore witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. In other words, he has literally sweat drops of blood for you, church. He works hard for you. He sacrifices for you in prayer for the purpose that, you notice here, the purpose that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now I'm going to step on your toes here for just a minute. Notice what that pastor prays for and what he doesn't pray for. Sometimes prayer ministry in the life of the local church focuses more on the physical and temporal lives we live in rather than the spiritual good of others. What Epaphras wrestled with, what he struggled with, what he was anxious about was their spiritual lives, not their physical being. No doubt many in that congregation had physical ailments. No doubt many in that congregation uh, were ridden with disease and difficulties and various affirmities. But what he concerned himself most with was that they would be mature in Christ. That they would be spiritually mature, built up. What he gave himself over to was praying that they would know the mind of God. That they would know God's will in their life. That they would be fully assured of it. He cared about their assurance of salvation. He, he cared that they would know the gospel, but that they would believe the gospel. 
And I wonder this morning, do we have a similar accountability among the pastors and leaders of this church? Is our standard of leadership that they care about the physical needs of the church or the spiritual needs of the church? It seems that Paul's ministry was focused more on the the spiritual over and against the physical. There's nothing wrong with praying for physical need. Nothing at all. Jesus gives several examples of it. But, but friend, we must not dominate ourselves with physical prayer requests, but see what matters most. Is that brother's soul being built up? Is that sister's soul being encouraged? That is the aim, brothers and sisters. That is the, how you ought to hold your pastors accountable, your deacons accountable, to making sure they are pouring spiritual prayers before the Lord. The standard of ministry ought to be that of those who give over themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Friend, your soul is what is eternal. And so Paul here describes this hard kingdom activity. That faithful gospel ministry involves more than just one individual. Paul couldn't do it alone. He needed an army of men and of women. And we notice here, verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now why do I emphasize that? Because you know a lot of times we get a little sideways when we think about the role of men and women in the church. And this sister opened up her house. In fact, the Bible tells us that Mark's mommy also opened up her house to, to, for the gospel work going on there in Jerusalem. It's a reminder to us that men and women have an important role in the life of the church. That there's a ministry opportunities for both within this church. And we see that as a, an example here. Paul didn't hate women. Paul here is celebrating women in the life of the church. There's this sort of false doctrine that's out there that Paul somehow hated women. That's a lie from Satan himself. And right here we see that Paul here is celebrating the women's work in the life of the church in sacrificially giving of her home to see the gospel go and spread throughout the Lucian Valley. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea. And to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter's read, he says, among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you have the letter read from Laodicea. See, brothers and sisters, it's a reminder this morning that church is done in a community. We are not the only church in Avon Park that believes the gospel. If you think that, you are a fool. And I mean that in the most loving way. There are many who claim the name of Christ in this city, many who claim the name of Christ in this county, who are doing faithful, good ministry for the glory of God in Christ. And we see this example given to us in this book that ministry wasn't to be cornered and cul-de-sacted in Colossae, but we see that it spread throughout the Lucian Valley in big cities like Laodicea. Laodicea would have been more known than Colossae. 
It would have been the one, that, the destination point, not Colossae. Nobody was like, man, I can't wait to get to Colossae. But Paul writes the letter to Colossae. That little church was doing bigger kingdom impact than the big city of Laodicea and Heropolis. It's a reminder to us that even small towns can have big impact. The gospel ministry involves more than just one individual and incorporates a variety of men and women into its service and a variety of churches. We ought to be thankful for the partners in the gospel ministry we have here. Friend, we can't do it alone. We'll never be able to do it alone. That's why this church has sent out members to plant churches throughout Highlands County over its years because it recognized throughout its ministry we can't do it alone And Paul models for us here in this particular passage and demonstrates to us how the inner working of the church worked. It was about people living their lives for the kingdom impact that God had called them to. We see in our text there was this focus on mutual encouragement, edification of the saints, gospel clarity, and a robust prayer life. We must see that our church activity includes mutual encouragement. We ought to hold each other accountable in this way. We ought to be about encouraging one another. Even going back to Tychicus here at the beginning, he, I've sent him to you this, for this very purpose, that he may encourage your hearts. Ministers of the gospel encourage people. They don't discourage them. We ought to encourage one another. We ought, we ought to share the word with one another. Text one another, call one another, visit with one another, encourage one another spiritually for the glory of God in Christ. We ought to regularly do this in our gatherings, in our conversations. We should aim to edify others. Friend, ministry is done, I think, more after our gatherings than than really even in our gatherings many times. In the kind of conversations we have with one another, just encouraging, hearing about how we're doing spiritually. For them, let me just encourage you. One of the questions you ought to ask, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing reading your Bible? How is your prayer life? Let me just encourage you to incorporate those kind of questions in your regular conversations with one another. How are you doing loving your wife? How are you doing loving your husband? How about those children? They're pretty hard to love sometimes, aren't they? How are you doing? How can I help encourage you in this way? We see also here in this passage the unity among Paul's workers that ought to be evident among us. I mentioned just very briefly this reconciled relationship between Mark and Paul, and it's a reminder to you and I this morning that we are all saved by grace. We're all sinners. And sometimes I know that there, there's history, right? I've spent the last four months learning some, some history, all right? And so sometimes it's, it's easy for me, who's not been a part of that history, to kind of poke at it and say, listen, y'all need to get along a little bit. But friend, you need to get along because Jesus died for you just as much as the person across the room. Jesus went to Calvary just as much for that person you can't stand as he did for you. Because there's people that can't stand you either. 
Jesus died that we might be one in Christ. And I'm not saying it's easy to forgive others. I'm not saying it's easy to reconcile with one another. And I understand that people did things to hurt you. But you also need to understand that Jesus died for that sin just as much as he died for your sin. We see in the example here of the Apostle Paul that this congregation was to welcome John Mark if he was able to make a visit. It's a reminder that we ought to welcome sinners that are saved by the grace of God. Also, we see in this passage that as a congregation, we ought to submit to the apostolic witness that is given to us. Paul says there in verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Paul is commanding people to do some things in this passage. Sometimes we get a little confused about the Apostle Paul and particularly these letters. But I want to conclude this morning by reminding you that these words, though penned by the Apostle Paul, and actually they're penned by Timothy, not by Paul. We see that in verse 18, that Timothy was the one that wrote this letter, and Paul signed it. It's a reminder to us this morning that this historically has been understood as canonical scripture. In other words, it's the authoritative word of Jesus. When we see throughout this section Paul referring to these men as servants in the Lord, as slaves of the Lord, or even as the Apostle Paul began this letter by calling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, it means that these words are Jesus' words. These are not merely men's word to man, but God's word to men. And therefore, they are authoritative in our lives. They are not to be brushed aside. We are not to just say, well, that that was Paul, not Jesus. That's why those red-letter Bibles do not help you in this way. Because the whole Bible ought to be read. The whole Bible is red-lettered. Every word from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus' word to you. And we ought to submit to them as if Jesus of Nazareth was reading them out to us this morning. And this is why Paul concludes in verse 18 saying this, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. What was the need for him to write this greeting to that congregation? Why why did he need to sign it? Because he needed to ensure that this congregation understood that this was authoritative. This came from King Jesus. This came from the desk of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul was his representative. What Paul said, Jesus said. We ought to believe it. We ought to hold it as Scripture and authoritative in binding the life of the church. Finally, we see here that Paul reminds them of these gospel commitments. Remember my chains, he says. Remember 
my chains. Paul invites them to pray for him, a reminder that he was imprisoned for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that the gospel calls us to go to places that we don't want to go to. One of the songs we're going to be learning over the next few weeks, you heard the choir just beautifully sing this morning, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Paul's reminding them of that theological truth. Remember my chains. Paul didn't want to be in that cold Roman jail cell. But it's a reminder that Paul willingly submitted to the will of God that it was right. Even though we may not understand it, it's always right. But we see finally, grace be with you. Paul gives these final words to this young congregation, a reminder that it's all about grace. Grace be with you. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is about grace. He concludes where he began, that the gospel of grace is all that they needed. The only word that you and I need is grace. The gospel alone is the means by which you and I have union with Christ and with one another, friend. We need to be about the gospel of grace. What kind of people will we be? If we were to have words written about us in the ministry of First Baptist Avon Park and the men and women who represent this congregation, do people call us beloved? Do they call us faithful? Do we call us encouragers? Do we call us hard workers, knees worn out because we've been pleading before the throne of grace for people's lives, that they would be transformed, that they would know Jesus more? Are our pastors known for their prayer life? Are our deacons known for their prayer life? Are they known for working hard? Is that the standard we have for one another? Are we known for these activities? Are we known for sending out men and women to the nations that, that we might have a kingdom impact in that way? Are we known as a congregation that submits to the authoritative word of God? Are we known as dispensers of grace and mercy and love? Are we known for anger and bitterness and resentment? Brothers and sisters, let us be known in this place as people who are recipients of grace, givers of grace, and all around gracious in our lives. Let us be people of grace. In this way, we make a kingdom impact for the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning that you would help us to grow, that we would grow to be more mature, more Christ-like. Help us, Lord, we pray, submitting to your word. It is hard to submit to your word. Your word is hard. Though your word is hard, your burden is light. We pray this morning that we would be transformed through your word Help us to be more gracious. Help us to be more gospel-centered. Help us, we pray, by raising up men and women that might have that kingdom impact. And we pray it for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.